We're reading from Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. As I said, we're back in Philippians chapter 3 this morning, and we're walking through Philippians. And one of the things I somewhat wished is we could just kind of start over in Philippians chapter 3, because the longer that we stay in this chapter, the more I begin to see some things that I think are incredibly valuable for us to see. And particularly if we're wrestling with that question of how do you know what true Christianity is? It just seems to me that's really what Paul continues to hammer here in Philippians chapter 3. Paul wept, as we read a couple of weeks ago, he wept when he talked about people living as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul's passion was that the gospel would be clearly understood and firmly planted into the lives of the people that he ministered to. I was, I was thinking of that a bit as I went back to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And that is the portion of scripture where Paul is giving defense of his apostleship. And he's trying to convince the people that he is a true apostle. And he says some things very strongly in that passage. But what he does in part of it is he gives a litany of uh, the things that he has suffered. And he's pretty bold about what has happened in his life. And he's he does it in a way that he's almost uncomfortable about doing, but he knows he has to somehow give defense of his apostleship. And so hesitantly, he says things like this. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors for more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Each of those could have killed him. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. And a night and a day I was drift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the wilderness, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. That picture he paints to show that he has suffered for the sake of the gospel as a true apostle. And then he says something that almost doesn't seem to fit. All of that litany of stuff. But he compares them on equal grounds. He goes on to say, and apart from the other things, all that stuff he just listed, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. That is a window into Paul's soul of how deeply he felt this compulsion to make sure the gospel was clearly understood and firmly planted into those to whom which he went and wrote. You've heard the expression probably in the past that you ought to preach the gospel and if necessary use words. I think Paul 
would not think very highly of that statement. Preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. I understand what they're saying. I understand we need to be the gospel to people. We need to love people. There's certainly truth in that. But there's great danger in a statement like that. And Paul would have seen it. Because Paul knew that there was a cognitive understanding that must take place. And the only way to really understand the gospel was for him to teach and to write and to send letters and to give warning. Paul believes strongly that we need to get it right. And I am troubled in our day and age, just to be honest with you. We live in a day and age where you've been sold a bill of goods that nobody can know anything. Nobody can know for sure. And if you buy that lie of our culture, it's tough to think, how in the world could this be right? How in the world do I know this is right? How in the world do I know what to believe? And if you're wrestling with that, whatever age you are, I want to say to you, Philippians 3 is for you. Because Paul's heart was to make sure that people understood the gospel understood what the picture of true belief was and he came against air a couple of weeks ago i gave a description that paul gives it's the description he gave in the verses just preceding what we read i want to read those to you again and i want to pick that up a bit and then move on into what was read this morning but look at verse 17 it says brothers join in imitating me And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. That would seem like the height of arrogance to our culture today, for somebody to make that kind of statement. But Paul made it unashamedly. He He didn't bat an eye in saying that. We have been we have been sold something that's not true. There is a place for people like Paul to say that. Because what he says is true. And it's important for us to know it. He goes on to write, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is in their shame. With minds set on earthly things. For a long time, I saw that passage as as a believer kind of not living where he should live, and so he's living really as a believer, as an enemy of the cross. But that's not what the context is here. The context of this passage is clearly that those who are living as enemies of the cross are lost. Their end is destruction. They are not believers. They are heretics. They are people who've come into the church and distorted the gospel. And Paul says they live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And so a couple of weeks ago, I gave you some things to to watch for. Now, I'm not trying to set us on edge in the sense that we have to be suspicious all the time. But we need to be careful. And if you begin to see some of these characteristics rising up in the lives of those who are, are presumably preaching the gospel or sharing the gospel, you need to be careful. It doesn't mean that everything they're saying is wrong, but it should give you pause And sometimes it should make you realize what they are teaching is not the gospel at times. All of these characters can rise up to one degree in people. You'll understand that. But if they are, if they are pervasive, if they are predominant, if they are, if they are really the heart of the person sharing, 
something is wrong and they ought to give you pause and you ought to be careful about listening. He was talking about two different types of people here. He was coming against the Judaizers, those who wanted to mix Christianity and and Judaism together, their, their, their Jewish faith together, were called Judaizers, and they added to the gospel. It's why that statement there that I read earlier, we worship by the Spirit of God and, uh, and uh, glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. They were people who put confidence in the flesh. In other words, you needed Christ, but you needed to add all of this to it. They distorted the gospel. Their end was destruction because, in fact, if they were not trusting in Christ alone, they were headed for destruction. They would be lost. He knew it was a distortion of the gospel. and He knew anybody who bought into that would go off that cliff with them. And so he talked about the Judeans as they were the Jewish people he was writing against. But there also were Gentiles that were coming to try to distort the Philippians. And they were the Gnostics. They later became known as the Gnostics. And what the Gnostics taught was that you needed a certain level of intellectual understanding that was higher. And if you attained that, you would somehow be saved. If you got all these things right, that you would, in getting all of that right, obtain eternal life and so the gnostics were doing some of the same stuff and both of those groups he was saying are enemies of the cross of christ and he gives a description of what they look like and that's what i want to take a moment to do and then move on this morning again first of all the thing i said a couple of weeks ago is they believed with all of their heart they were right these were not people who were trying to pull the wool over somebody's eyes they believed what they believed they were passionate about what they believed And so I say this morning, just because somebody is passionate and seems sincere, you have to check out the message. We live in a day and age when doctrine is downplayed. Doctrine is put on the shelf and saying it's too hard to understand. And and so people sometimes can be swayed so easily if somebody raises the level of their passion. And there are all kinds of people who are walking off cliffs to destruction Because they're being attracted to passion and sincerity. Sincerity is not enough. Passion is not enough. You have to have the message right. It has to be clear. You could follow the Judaizers who would have great passion right off the cliff with them. Or the Gnostics right off the cliff with them. And Paul knew that. It's why he put in the same context all of the things that he had suffered with the anxiety daily of the churches. Because he knew there were always people popping up all around. And if that was true then, how much more is it true today? And how much more prevalent is it today in this age of of the Internet that we have? We have to be careful. We must know what the gospel is. We must know it so that we're not deceived and led astray. The second thing that I said was that uh, they were bright people and they were convincing people. The argument is here where it says, um, with minds set on earthly things. It begins by their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. It's not that what their arguments were not convincing. They were very convincing. They, they, They appealed to human reason. And, you know, there's, there's arguments out there that can appeal to human reason. They can appeal to our flesh, and they can seem right to us. And they are oh so wrong. And that's exactly what was happening. Paul, if they were fools, 
uh, if they were in that category, people wouldn't listen to them. But the concern for Paul was they were not. They were not foolish in that sense. They, they appeared bright and they had convincing arguments. It wasn't, it wasn't the buffoons that Paul was concerned about. It was those who were bright and had convincing arguments. And I liken that to what happens oftentimes as kids go off to school and they're not very grounded in, their, in what they understand and what they believe and why they believe it and all of those kinds of things. And they get in a class with somebody who is very bright and very convincing and very passionate and sincere. And you can see how they're set up to go right off the cliff. And so I say this morning that uh, these people were not, were not dumb Their arguments appealed to people, and that's why they could get a following. You think of it for a bit of even in our culture today, an example of this would be Mormonism. Mormonism has great following in our society today. Mormonism is built on a religion of the flesh. It's built on works. It's built on what we do, and that has great appeal to people who want to do something and want to earn something, don't want to be dependent. You see, Christianity is fundamentally a dependence upon God, trusting Him, trusting all that He is for us in Christ. But that goes against the grain for us, particularly Americans. It's foolishness in many senses, unless our eyes are opened and our ears can hear. And so there's all kinds of things that rise up and people follow it. Because it has a sense of truth, a sense of reason about it. It's just not godly reason. Thirdly, they have a veiled pride. It says the end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory, and they glory in their shame. They glory in their shame is the statement. One of the things that you begin to see in in movements, particularly religious movements, movements that would use the label of Christianity that are not true Christianity, um, it certainly can rise up even in those that are. I said that some of these things are temptations for all of us. But, but one of the things that begins to happen is you begin to see a veiled pride. A veiled pride because any religion of the flesh, at the basis of it, is pride. At the basis of it is, I do something. I do something, therefore I merit something. And if you fundamentally go there, it leads to pride. It fuels pride. It fans pride. And so I would say to you this morning, if, if you sense that in, in some thing that you're listening to or following or reading, and there's a sense in which this uneasiness of this, this pride seems to kind of come roaring up from nowhere at times, you wonder what in the world, be careful. Because fundamentally, Christianity is not about that. Fundamentally, at its heart, Christianity is about the unmerited grace of God and favor toward us. In fact, the longer that we walk with Christ, the more that we glory in Christ, the more that we understand of the gospel, the more humble it should make us to realize how utterly dependent we were and are on God's grace. You see, that that rubs against the grain. 
of the natural man. But the natural man, if he's teaching in the flesh, still has it. There's no way to remedy it. It's the grace of God. It's the true Christianity that changes that. That fundamentally, the reason people are not Christians is because they still want to be their own God. They might not say it that way, but fundamentally, they want to be their own God, which is an issue of pride at its heart, at the root. Certainly, it, it is full of legalism, um, Judaism, or not Judaism, but the Judaizers were full of legalism, moralism. The Gnostics took pride in what they knew, their knowledge. So these two things that Paul was writing against, they glory in their shame. The thing they take confidence in should shame them. But it doesn't. It should move them to humility if they truly embrace and have the true gospel of Christ. And then it says in verse in that same verse their god is their belly. We talked a little bit about that. We talked about sensuality. Sensuality is is in those kinds of movements someplace. It may be suppressed in many ways, but it comes and pops its head out in surprising places. Because the whole idea of a religion of suppression, a religion that I just suppress some things, you can't do it. You can't get your hand over all the holes. And someplace, as you suppress it here, it will come up someplace else. And sensuality begins to just kind of bubble out of those kinds of movements in places. And so you, you, you see these kinds of movements and they have lots of things together. But then as you look underneath the surface a little bit, you start to see some things that just don't, don't seem to jive with all of that and are inconsistent with the rest. So sensuality. Sensuality is reason for you to, to, to be guarded and to be careful. And then finally it says, the end is destruction. Paul unequivocally is saying, these people are lost. And there are all kinds of lost people today who sound very good. Their arguments sound very convincing. But if they are not rooted fundamentally and centered in Christ and Christ alone, it is not the gospel. That's why I ended that week going back to Philippians chapter 3. That's why I say to you that Philippians chapter 3 is, is for you if you're struggling with this idea of who in the world is right. But this is where mom and dad have taken me. What if they've taken me someplace else? How can I know? How can I know one thing is right over another? This is the passage that you want to go to. The passage you want to go to is in verse 3 that I've read already a couple of times to you. Paul says, we are the real circumcision. We're the real deal. We're the right one. They're the wrong ones. That's what Paul's saying. You can't paint it any other way. He is saying that. The real circumcision has these three characteristics. They worship by the Spirit of God. They glory in Christ Jesus. And they put no confidence in the flesh. Do you want to know, do you want to test something? Test it by those things. Test it by those things. And if ever you find that it doesn't pass those tests, or even the tests that I've talked about, run. Run even if it comes from my lips from this pulpit. 
Run. Run. It can come anywhere, any place, any time. We need to glory in Christ Jesus. That is what a Christian does. Because Christ is their only hope. He finished the work. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. And the only hope for you and me of not having our end be destruction is that we have trusted Him. And we cling to Him. He is our Savior. We see that as Paul writes on. As we go on now, as we move on, look, he continues to hammer that same message because he says just after verse 19 where it says, The end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame, with minds set on earthly things. And then he says, But, but, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So at the beginning of that, he goes through that litany of three things. But now as he comes to the end of the chapter, he does somewhat the same thing. He says, we're right. This is right. Listen to me. Don't be deceived. Don't be led astray. Don't let people and these high-sounding arguments deceive you, but come back to Christ. Here in this passage, he says, our citizenship is in heaven. What does he mean by that? What, what does Paul go back there for? I think it's because he's talking about that's where our allegiance is. That's where our Savior is. Because he goes on to say, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It centers in Christ. You don't add to Christ. You don't take away from Christ. You just wait for Christ. He is our Savior. This morning, let me ask the question, as you made your way to church, as you gathered into this sanctuary this morning, as you began to prepare for worship, Maybe, maybe, the reason I say maybe is because it happens to me. All of a sudden, Satan begins to accuse you. Maybe he accuses you of something that happened this week. Maybe he accuses you of something that happened yesterday. Maybe he accuses you of something that happened on the way getting here. Where do you go? What do you do? Do you try to justify it? Do you try to somehow say, well, that really wasn't sin? It was their fault. Or blame somebody else? Or do you just go back to Christ? Do you glory in Christ? That's what it means to glory in Christ. Yes, it's true. Yes, I sinned. But I'm awaiting a Savior who's going to come back. And He's a Savior. He's my Savior. And as he said, I go away, I will return. And I cling to him. Have you learned what it is to glory in Christ? Have you learned not to look to other things? Not to, to, to jump through a bunch of other hoops. But just to come back to Christ. To glory in him. 
to glory in what he accomplished, to glory in the righteousness that he provides for you. You see, Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's simply the gospel. The gospel is we have a Savior. We don't have to add to him. We don't have to subtract from him. We don't have to know some great knowledge that other people don't know necessarily. We just need to look to him and his provision. And it goes on to say, this Savior who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Talking about the resurrection. Paul, or, uh, Jesus was resurrected from the dead as confirmation. As we talked about Easter time, why, did, why do we need a resurrection? The resurrection is God's statement to say what Jesus did, he did perfectly. What he did was sufficient. And the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is God's, the Father's confirmation that Jesus did it. And it's enough. But it goes on to say, he was resurrected from the dead. He was bodily resurrected. But we also, we also will have our lowly body resurrected as well. We don't have to fear death. Because He's our Savior. Because we glory in Christ Jesus. We trust what He has done to be sufficient that our body too will be raised to be like His glorious body. Think about that a minute. Look at what it says. Who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. Do you just run by those kinds of words? As you read the scripture, or do you let them sink in? You begin to glory in Christ Jesus. That one day, this lowly body, one day the brokenness of this world is going to be gone. One day Jesus is going to resurrect me and my body, and my body will be like his glorious body. It's a wonderful thing, it's a wonderful promise. You see, Jesus never goes back to not being in a glorious body. He, he never goes back. I've talked about that before. Sometimes we think we, he came, he spent 33 years, and then he goes back to just being God. But Jesus came and he forever was fully God and fully man now for all eternity future. Was he in all eternity past? No. But for all eternity future, Jesus has a glorious body. And our body is going to be like his glorious body. And I believe a new heavens and a new earth will come together. And the brokenness will all be gone. You see, we glory in Christ Jesus. We glory in who he is. And what he's going to accomplish. And it goes on to say, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. How does he do it? By the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Let me, let me read to you the words of another which have application to what we read right there. This person comments as follows. The power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. 
In one sense, Christ has the right to rule the universe because he is God. Not because he died and rose again. He did not have to die and rise in order to be what he was. And what he is from all eternity is God. This gives him the right to exercise authority over all things. But, in another sense, God the Father decreed that it would be most fitting, appropriate, beautiful, good, right, for the one who rules the world of fallen humankind and everything that relates to humans and their suffering would be the one who bore their likeness and endured their temptation and suffered their pain and died their death. God decreed that the one who would rule in the power would be a redeemer who suffered with us and for us in this world. God decreed that the Lion of Judah, when he comes in power and great glory to bring judgment on the earth, will have a lamb slain for sin on the earth. Hebrews 2.10 says, For it is fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The Lord and judge and Savior over all the universe was tested and found perfect through human suffering. Now he is doubly suited for his role as Lord of the universe. He is God with natural rights and he is Redeemer with purchased rights. He can put his foot on Satan's neck not just because of raw divine power, which would have been enough, but also because he exposed himself to Satan's temptations and his final weapon and death and broke it on Easter Sunday morning. So he is doubly suited to rule. He has created rights and he has redeemer rights. That's what it means when it says, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This morning, I hope And I pray that you have not bought the lie that you can't know something. That you can't know this Savior. And you can't know that He's your Savior. And you can't know that one day He will transform your lowly body to be like His glorious body. You see, that's the promise that comes to us as Christians. And it all centers in the Gospel. It all centers in Christ being our Savior. It all centers in us not adding to that, but trusting in it fully and completely. It all centers in casting the whole weight of your hope in the provision of Christ. That's the message of Christianity. That's the core of Christianity. And, and all of those who would oppose it, all of those who would distort it, in one way or another are doing something that causes you to not fully glory in Christ. Doesn't mean that some of those people don't glory in Christ. They just don't fully glory in Christ because they glory in Him plus something else. And whenever there's a plus something else that we're glorying in, it's not Christianity. I say to you as we come to the close now of Philippians chapter 3, you can know. What does true Christianity look like? True Christianity looks like people who glory in Jesus Christ alone. That is their hope. They're not hoping anywhere else but in His death, burial, and resurrection.
I pray that we will always be a church that centers there and that more and more we will learn to glory in Him more fully. Now certainly you don't glory anywhere else, but you can glory more fully. We get a lifetime of glorying more fully, of seeing how much more glorious that whole picture of what Christ has done can be to us. That's why I say often to you, and I say it again as we close this morning, that the gospel is for believers. Why do we need it? Because a believer is one who glories in Christ and puts no confidence in the flesh. We're going to sing together that song as the worship guys come back this morning that we've been singing all through this series, which says, all I have is Christ. And what that means is, all that I glory in is Christ. I put my confidence nowhere but in Him. Nowhere but in Christ. Let's stand together as we sing this morning. One last thing. This is why I feel this so strongly and why I spent so much time in Philippians chapter 3. 1973, I've told you this story. I came to Christ in a high school auditorium. I was 18 years old. But just a few days after that, after I had gone forward and, and, and I think genuinely been converted, prayed, prayed to receive Christ, I remember sitting in a room in a church with a gentleman who was fairly persuasive. I was a new Christian. I was looking for anybody to teach me. And I remember the room. I remember the time. I remember him starting to talk to me. And I remember him saying, what's happened is good, but there's something else. He didn't use exactly those terms, but that's exactly what he went on to try to show me. He said, there's something else. There's something else. I was only a few days old in Christ, but I remember the resistance I felt in my soul to that. And I remember leaving that encounter thinking, I'm confused, but there's something not right about this. There's something not right. It can't be. You've got to have two things. That's story number one. Story number two was, it was probably a few weeks after this, that it was the summer of 1973. I had come to Christ in February. And there were a couple of missionaries representing a stripe of denomination who were in our community and somehow our cross path, probably because we had a group of Christians that had come to Christ and these guys knew we were meeting and they decided to get into our group and they got in and they got me. And they started to tell me, you weren't baptized the right way. I'd been baptized just a couple of weeks before that. But you weren't baptized correctly. Here's the correct way you should have been baptized. Here's really what you should have thought before you were baptized. And it sent me spinning. Spinning. It sent me spinning so much that I've told you this story of being at a camp later that summer and communion trays coming back. And I was so confused at that point. I ran out on the hillside as those communion trays came. I knew I couldn't take communion in that context. And I remember wailing to God, God, why in the world did you bring those guys into my life? I am so confused. I wanna, I, I'd like to start over what I really would like to die 
That's how, that's the agony I felt in my soul. Well, all of the time, I think God was doing something in both of those circumstances. I was a new believer. I didn't have very good grounding. But I say to you today, the reason I feel the passion to say to you, true Christianity is about glorying in Christ, is because that's what God taught me in that. He taught me that that's the core. He taught me that anybody who wants to add to that is wrong. And anybody who wants to add to that is in danger of destruction. Because if you're adding, you're trusting something else. So I say to you today, get centered there. Understand what we mean when we say all I have is Christ. Because that is the core. That is knowable. That is right. That is the true circumcision Paul was talking about. That's the true way. We worship by the Spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus. And he didn't say alone, but he would have alone and put no confidence in the flesh. That is the truth. Don't let anybody convince you otherwise. That is Christianity. Father, I pray you'll help us. Help us to be people who glory in Christ. Help us to learn more of what it is to glory in Christ. God, keep us from running to some other secret someplace. That's what the Gnostics would have said. There's something else. There's something else. Anytime somebody wants to say there's something else, oh God, put a resistance in our soul. I'm grateful you put a resistance in my soul. I'm grateful that even though I didn't understand it all, I knew both of those groups had to be wrong. It's not what you wanted it to be. They were wrong. And Lord, I just pray that you will help us. Help us to be a people who glory in Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed this morning.